Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in-depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now, here's the show. I'm not against immigrants coming because we need them. We have six million open jobs in this country that we can't fill with American citizens. I'm against a disorderly process. Conservative Democrats could be key to a deal on immigration, which might be the biggest issue in this year's election. It's Tuesday, January 23rd, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we'll hear about the rollout of a new malaria vaccine in Africa. And independent elections commissions are supposed to make redistricting fair and transparent. But it doesn't always work out that way. Take the case of Washington State, where a public Zoom meeting meant to be a pandemic accommodation turned out to be a fig leaf hiding some decidedly undemocratic proceedings. They almost immediately announced that they would be going into private conferences, and they put a big sign up for viewers saying, you know, meeting in progress, but, but there, there was absolutely no public input. More on that in about 15 minutes. But first, polls show and voters tell us that immigration is a top concern, the top issue for many voters. It's also a top concern of nine Democratic governors who've sent a letter to the White House and Congress asking for a, quote, serious commitment to fixing a broken immigration system. Then there's the 14 House Democrats who last week voted for a Republican resolution denouncing what they called President Biden's open border policies. There's an immigration deal brewing in Congress to address some of that. And for a glimpse of what might be in it, we called up Texas Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, one of the Democrats who signed that Republican-led resolution. In this conversation with Robin Young, he says, sure, it's not an open border, but there are problems. Well, it's not a completely open border, right? That's, I mean, we hear that that's more of a Republican talking point. It's, it's nonsense. It's not an open border, but it's a porous border, and it's a border that needs to be enforced, and a lot more needs to be done yeah. along our southern border. Okay, well, the debate seems to be, and I'm just going to, I'm really going to simplify this, between House Republicans who want to close the border, they passed a bill in May that would effectively end access to asylum at the border, And Democrats who want to largely strengthen border staffing, more agents, officers, judge teams to speed up asylum requests. You represent Brownsville, Texas, one of the border towns most effective. So start there. Do you think that the problems you're seeing on the border could uh, be better controlled by border agents with more resources? Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, We we are 4,200 CBP agents short. We don't have enough uh, immigration judges to process asylum claims in an expedited way. We have a shortage of resources along along the southern border and and uh, a very complicated process to hire more agents. So yeah. uh, it's in a tough, we're in a tough situation. We'll talk about the humanitarian parole that uh, President Biden, like other presidents before him, 
This allows large numbers of migrants to come into the U.S. from countries like Haiti, Afghanistan, Ukraine. Um, Again, it's not like an asylum seeker, but allows them to come in while, you know, they work through a a process, which can be a very long process. Um, Now, in the House, we know Republicans wanted to end this humanitarian parole. We understand in the current negotiation in the Senate, uh, Republicans want a hard cap on numbers that a president can let in. Where do you stand on this? I mean, these are Ukrainians, Afghans. Okay, so every country should look be looked at uh, differently, as we historically have. But um, we do have a problem in just allowing everyone in very easily. The fact is, over 70% of migrants who come to our southern border uh, never, ever qualify for asylum, because most of them are economic migration, and we got to come to terms with that. Economic hardship <laughs> is what is driving a lot of this. And we know that there are countries right. in complete failure, uh, which That's is, right. you know, something that uh, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle could address. And historically, immigrants have come to this country because of economic hardship, you know, uh, famines and, and, and right. other, other so things. So I'm not, I'm not against immigrants coming because we need them. We have six million open jobs in this country that we can't fill with American citizens. I'm against a disorderly process. We need to create a system that works. I've proposed uh, safe zones where migrants are allowed to ask for asylum in, say, Guatemala, Panama, where they can be processed. And if we're ultimately going to allow them in under the credible fear standard that we have now, which I believe is a very low standard, by the way, then do it from that juncture. And it takes the pressure off our southern border. And the speaker we have now uh, has a historic opportunity to bring the country together and pass meaningful bipartisan legislation that could address the border and many other profound issues that are impacting our everyday life. Uh, Look, there's so much to talk about here. We want to have you back as this deal gets hammered out. What are you telling your fellow Democrats about the deal that's being hammered in the Senate? Does there have to be compromise? And do you expect to get any of that in the House? We know Speaker Johnson's job is on the line, as Kevin McCarthy's was. It is. It's going to take some political courage to do what's right for the American people. What do you think? Um, What do you think? What do you think Republicans have to give up? What do you think Democrats have to give up? Well, I think nobody's going to get everything they want in this bill. I've lived around the border most of my life, and I could tell you I've never seen anything like I've seen, you know, in the last five years. And it's not only under this administration. It was happening under the Trump administration. And and, and building a wall ha- has a zero effect well, on and, migrants coming. And and President Trump didn't build a wall. He didn't build no. a complete wall. And but, even if he had, yeah. it wouldn't have made a difference because people are showing up to my border where there is a wall and they walk up to the camera and they wave at the camera and they tell the agents, they're already on the American side, they say, please come get me so I can process my asylum claim. One last question. There's a whiff in the air, more than a whiff, that Republicans would very much like this issue to continue until the election. Oh, yeah, Uh, without a doubt. so, So how do you change that and get them to go along with the deal? Well, I can tell you that once we have a proposal, a bipartisan proposal that comes out of the Senate, If the Republicans crash that deal in the House, it will be on them. And the problems that are happening on their on the border, they will have to own. And and another thing, I think the president can do a lot more on executive order, like having safe zones in other countries to process claims. I think we have an emergency on the border that would allow him to use his executive powers uh, to make that happen. And I think he should do it. Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, the Democrat from Texas. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next, Scott Tong checks in on a historic campaign in Cameroon 
where the world's first malaria vaccine for children is making its debut. What it could mean when we return. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. The big moment in the fight against malaria. This week, Cameroon is the first African country to launch a vaccine to inoculate tens of thousands of children against the deadly disease. Every year, malaria kills about 600,000 people on the continent. That averages out to 1,600 or so deaths every day, mostly children under five. Let's talk about the vaccine with Andrew Joseph. He's Europe correspondent with our editorial partners at Stat News. Andrew, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. So experts are calling this a historic moment, this week's rollout starting in Cameroon. Tell us about this vaccine, what it does. Yeah, this vaccine is called RTSS, and it's made by GSK, the the pharma company. Um, and this is the first use of a vaccine, sort of in routine, of a malaria vaccine in routine use, so outside of a trial or pilot program. And basically, what this vaccine does is um, it sort of prevents the malaria p- parasite. You know, if if, if it if someone gets it, for, you know, after a mosquito bites them, it prevents them, uh, prevents the parasite from really establishing an infection. It just sort of works to eliminate the parasite before it can start replicating and establish an infection. Mm-hmm. And I read that the efficacy rate is around 30 percent to the late year. That sounds low. You know, that, it's a bit higher than that, actually. Okay. Um, so it's, it, you know, it, you know, this is a multi-dose vaccine. So, you know, but if you get the four... Uh, the the full four doses of the vaccine, the protection it's thought to cut, um, you know, clinical cases by about fifty percent. Okay. But they've found that if you keep providing the vaccine seasonally, you can actually um, reduce cases by up to seventy five percent. So mm-hmm. it, it's a you know it's it's pretty highly effective. You know, and at the same time, they would say communities should not let up on other you know f- steps to fight malaria, including bed nets. This is not a silver bullet, as they say, but it is a big step. I, I understand, Andrew, that this does not stop malaria from spreading. Is that correct? Well, you know, it doesn't prevent all cases. Um, and obviously, okay. it depends on the percentage of people that are, are given the vaccine. And this is primarily targeted at kids. And so malaria can still spread among adults, for example. But um, kids are the most vulnerable to, you know, frankly, dying from malaria. And so that's why they're targeting kids with this vaccine first to prevent the, the most severe cases. And stepping back, uh, remind us what malaria is. 
Yes. So malaria is a parasite um, and it is spread as we were talking about by mosquitoes. So if you are bitten by an infected mosquito, a little bit of the parasite will slip into your bloodstream. And, you know, without a vaccine, for example, it will go into your liver and start reproducing like crazy. And that causes the infection. And once you're infected, if a mosquito bites you, you know, it can suck up some of the parasite back into it and then pass it on to other people. So um, this is actually the first vaccine. And there's another malaria vaccine being rolled out later this year. Um, And these are the first vaccine against parasites. They're just much trickier to target than things like uh, viruses or bacteria. Yeah. How hard has it been to develop this vaccine? I I imagine scientists, drug companies have been trying this for a while. Yeah, you know, really decades. Um, And part of the issue is that when the malaria parasites get in, gets into your blood, you know, after a mosquito bite, it really like within a matter of hours gets into your liver and that's where it starts producing, like, reproducing like crazy. And once that happens, you kind of can't stop the infection from taking hold. You can treat it, but you can't really stop it. And so what they've had to do is they have this really narrow window of time to sort of wipe out the uh, parasite before they get to the liver. So they've had to just sort of refine how to, how to get that done super quickly before the parasites have a chance to start uh, replicating. Mm. So there's the vaccine, which, as you're telling us, has arrived. And then there's mm-hmm. the project of getting it into people's arms. Right, Cameroon is one of 20 African countries joining this effort. What are the logistical challenges? Yeah, so like we talked about, this is a four-dose vaccine, and it's for kids, so that will require parents to bring their kids into the clinic you know, several times over about a year. And so what they're trying to do right now is sort of line it up with other routine childhood immunizations. Um, other logistics are, you know, there's millions of people who may be wanting to get, um, you know, a malaria vaccine. Uh, and so what global health officials say is that between this vaccine, this RTSS vaccine that we've been talking about and this other vaccine called R21, that's going to be rolled out as well later this year. And that was Mm. developed by, uh, university of Oxford scientists. There should be enough supply to meet global demand, you know, and then they're like with any vaccine, it's a matter of, you know, there will be plenty of people who are really eager to get their kids this, but I'm sure there will be some people who take some convincing or may have questions about it as well. So there's a lot of community groundwork being done right now. Yeah. And I want to ask you about the convincing part. In this country, in the U.S., we, of course, have witnessed widespread misinformation, lies about vaccines and their presumed risks. Is that kind of thing a factor in this campaign across Africa? Yeah, that, that issue is not, uh, not, not unique to the United States. And so that does happen in other countries, and including in African countries. And so I think there will be some resistance to this vaccine among some people. Um, but, you know, local groups, you know, there's a lot of uh, international effort behind this vaccine, but there's also they're partnering with sort of local groups, community groups, to try to spread awareness about this vaccine, answer questions about this vaccine to, you know, obviously in maybe you can't eliminate, you know, vaccine hesitancy, but to try to minimize this. And, you know, I think a lot of people are like, see their kids get sick with malaria. And Mm. so if there is an option to protect them, uh, you know, a lot of people will take it. Andrew Joseph is Europe correspondent for our editorial partners at Stat News, the health and medicine publication. Andrew, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Coming up, when independent elections commissions are not so independent. After the break, Robin speaks with a reporter who has some insight into how politics can corrupt nominally nonpartisan mapmaking. ProPublica dug up texts between commissioners in Washington state that helped unravel a concerning and sometimes downright goofy tale of redistricting gone wrong. Stick around. 
Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. New Hampshire voters are at the polls today, the beginning of a wave that will crest in November. And when Americans go to vote, they will do it in districts whose borders cut profiles that even Salvador Dali could not dream up. Gerrymandering or lawmakers drawing district maps to let politicians essentially choose their voters instead of the other way around is not new. That's why 22 states now have some kind of independent commission to handle map drawing every 10 years. But independent commissions aren't always independent. A new investigation from ProPublica tells a devastating story that would be funny if it wasn't about, you know, saving democracy. It tells about commission members hashing out maps in Hampton Inns, hiding from lawmakers and lobbyists, still trying to corrupt what's supposed to be nonpartisan map making. ProPublica's Marilyn Thompson joins us now. Marilyn, thank you for this in-depth report. Thank you so much, Robin. And we're going to get to what you found in Washington State, but start with a refresher. What is gerrymandering? What were election commissions, independent commissions, supposed to do to change it? Uh, Gerrymandering is a very old phenomenon in electoral politics, but it basically is drawing lines deliberately to protect certain politicians. And it's a process that the public has has really rebelled against over the years, which is what led to the the movement for redistricting commissions that would be independent from the legislature, take the process out of the back rooms and turn it over to commissions that are, you know, different types of independent commissions. Mm. They vary from state to state, but the purpose is the same, transparency, and fairness to the public, which is supposed to have a lot of input into how the maps are drawn. Okay, so that brings us to Washington State, which is where your story is centered. The third state to set up an independent commission, which is back in 1983. Uh, We've got two Democrats, two Republicans, a non-voting member. This is 2020. And they were wrestling with addressing complaints from the growing Latino population in Washington State, which was not being represented. 
things weren't going well, as you describe it. Uh, they were being hunted by lawmakers, a lobbyist. What did they do? What did this commission do? There was supposed to be a Zoom meeting, a public Zoom meeting, but what, what ended up happening? Yeah, the commission had a very hard and fast deadline. It had to be finished with its maps, signed off by midnight on November 15th, and there was no leeway there. And so this commission, which had been arguing on partisan lines for weeks, decided that they would all get together at a Hampton Inn uh, outside of Seattle and meet in person for the first time. Remember, we were in a pandemic period Mm -hmm. when meetings were difficult to pull off. Uh, But they went to this Hampton Inn. They set up a Zoom call so that members of the public could listen and perhaps at some point see the maps that the commission had drawn. Because they are not supposed to be meeting in secret. This is supposed to be, you know, a public meeting. It's during COVID. So there's supposed to be this public Zoom meeting. What was happening? What was happening on the Zoom? Yeah, it was kind of a hilarious spectacle. They they met on Zoom. They all popped up in individual boxes, no indication that they were all sitting upstairs. And then they uh, almost immediately announced that they would be going into private conferences. And they put a big sign up for viewers saying, you know, meeting in progress. But but there, there was absolutely no public input. No. Um, yeah. And the, the call went on for five hours. Uh, every, every 30 minutes, somebody would show up and say, oh, they're still in private conferences. Uh, it's kind of like a funny spectacle, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I mean, just ridiculous, because they were not in little Brady Bunch boxes uh, separately. They were meeting secretly in a hotel room. But uh, during the course of them trying to hash this out, a consultant was brought in. He, He was advising the Democrats and the Republicans about the rights of the Latinos, and it became a debate, I understand, between the 14th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act. Right. It certainly did. Uh, Yeah, uh, the Democrats uh, and the Republicans could not agree on who they should bring in to do a voting rights analysis, which is kind of a first step in getting fairness in these maps uh, for Latino populations. So the Democrats used Senate money to hire their own consultant, and he came back and said, what you might expect. you got to create more opportunities for Hispanics to get elected. The Republicans went out and got their own uh, legal analysis, which said the exact opposite. And so they went into this big final meeting uh, kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. The Republicans were citing the uh, 14th Amendment saying that race couldn't be a factor and the Voting Rights Act says, yes, it can. I mean, it has to be. That, uh, yes. Yeah. But anyway, they, they can't come to an agreement. You write that the Democrats literally gave up, did not accept a map that would have, a, a, I think, a 60% percentage of Latinos in it. It's something called cracking. They said, you, the Republicans, are cracking the Latino population. Right, yes, the dividing up the population in order to diminish its, its voting power. Yeah. And the Democrats... You know, after an all-nighter, they kind of caved and said, all right, uh, we're going to approve a plan that doesn't meet our goal, 
but let's let the courts figure it out. Right. Well, a federal judge threw it out. They threw out Washington's yes. map in 2023. They said it had discriminated against Latinos after all. And it also came out that the commissioners were meeting in secret. They were fined for that. It's really kind of a devastating story about where we are. I mean, you know, interest groups wanted to weigh in. There were national political operatives trying to get to these people, lobbyists. That's the macro. And then on the micro, one commission member was trying to redraw a boundary on behalf of a friend who wanted to have their house in a certain district. Yeah. There there were a lot of petty little political requests that were coming in there in the final hours. which, you know, it's a huge time suck for, for the, these commissioners it's crazy. who, were, but who I, were under the gun. We just have to ask, you say the model, the gold standard for these independent commissions is California. Could you just briefly say why? What do they do that would have avoided what happened in Washington state? California went to great extent to try to create a commission that had much more independence from the legislature. So it's a much larger commission. It does include some Democrats and some Republicans, but it also includes some people with no political affiliation at all. Um, And the legislature has much less input into how that commission operates. So it is often cited as the model we should be striving for as these commissions spring up all over the place, and there's still some under consideration right now, uh, like the state of Ohio uh, is considering a new independent commission. Um, So people say, look to California, let that set the example here. But these bipartisan political commissions, like the one in Washington, which, you know, coming up as a political reporter over many years, that's the one that people always cited to me. Uh, This is a model for redistricting. (laughs) Well, uh, it it doesn't appear to be that anymore. Well, meanwhile, there are legal battles in 13 states over these commissions. And in Washington state, there's been a call to do like California. Yes, have a commission, but then legislators get out of the way, don't have anything to do with appointing who's on it, and they should be nonpartisans. What's the chance of that? There are a lot of uh, proposals under consideration right now and a movement uh, underway that they should make some reforms. But frankly, I don't know how that's going to end up at the moment. Both of these redistricting cases that were filed in Washington are before the U.S. Supreme Court now uh, on appeal. So we'll have to watch Washington very closely and see whether... Uh, this leads to any substantial change. That's Marilyn Thompson with ProPublica. We'll link you to her reporting at hereandnow.org. Marilyn, it's incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for us. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, Kalyani Saxena, and me, Chris Bentley. Today's editors were Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Micaela Rodriguez. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike and I also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman. 
Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you tomorrow. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. With more and more information coming at you all day every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter.